following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. Last week, we completed our series that I called In the Wilderness, as we were looking at some aspects of an important theme in the scriptures of being in the wilderness and what that means. We looked specifically at the three temptations that Jesus faced at the beginning of his public ministry. What we're looking at today brings us to nearing the end of his public ministry, the last week before he was crucified and he rose. Of course, we'll be doing that um, this, uh, this coming Friday, Good Friday, 10 o'clock here as usual, and then normal Sunday service to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And the week after that is the 24th, and as you know, that'll be our last Sunday here with you. So what I tried to capture in the dramatic presentation is the centuries of expectation that was instilled by God in the hearts and, and, and minds of the people of Israel. All the way going back to Abraham, God said that he would create this people, the people that became known as the people of Israel, to be a blessing to the nations. Paul even calls that promise the gospel in, in Galatians chapter 3. Blessing, the impartation of life, potential of life, to confront the curse that came upon all of creation, not just human beings, but all of creation, when our first parents sinned in the Garden of Eden. All the way from that time, God had determined to break that curse and restore the creation. And he began to develop that plan through Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel, that through his chosen people, he would confront sin and death and sickness and all the bad fruit of the initial rebellion by our first parents. God had given the Jewish people his word to live by, but also to show to the world that no nation, no individual can actually keep God's standards. As the people of Israel failed to live according to those standards, just like any other nation would have, if they had been the chosen ones, God began to bring warnings of of judgment because of their wayward ways. But because of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though judgment was coming, God had promised that there would be restoration. For the people of Israel in particular, that would be restoration to their land under under their own king, as well as the restoration of all the creation, culminating in what the Bible speaks of as the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment, when righteousness would reign in the whole universe. We proclaim every every week that we believe in the resurrection of the dead, but I find that most Christians don't connect with that concept because we teach, we tend, I don't, but... We teach people that the end of all things is this going to heaven forever, where we'll be with the angels kind of floating in some sort of non-physical existence. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches 
that we will spend forever with God on a renewed earth. And that's what the resurrection of the dead is all about. I don't want to get too, too much into that story because we'll be looking at that next Sunday. But here, the Jewish people had thought when centuries before this event, when they'd been exiled to Babylon, about 600 years, or what's, yeah, about 600 years before, um, I tend to get those dates wrong, so please forgive me. Um, it had been promised to the prophet Jeremiah that the people would return. And eventually under the next empire, the Persian Empire, they did come back and rebuild their temple. And many began to resettle the land of Israel. But things still were not the way that they should be. And it, it appeared that this return was not the fulfillment of the great promise of the restoration of all things. That was still to come as the Jewish people lived under the Persians, uh, the Greeks, and then the Romans, which takes us to the time of the coming of Jesus. And during the time of, of, the, of the Roman Empire in the land of Israel, it was a very difficult time. The Romans prided themselves in keeping the peace of their great empire. They did so under great oppression. They made sure that nobody stepped out of line. There was an interesting toleration of this strange Jewish religion, but there too, a, a lot of that was able to happen because of, of deals made between the Jewish religious leadership, particularly these groups of people, the group of people called the Sadducees, who were the priestly class, who, um, who managed the temple, that they had cut deals with Rome in order to stay in power. And... Um, and the, and the people knew that as, the, as the, the Sadducees got wealthier and wealthier and many of the people got poorer and poorer and they, they knew that things were not right. Yet another group of people called the Pharisees that believed that if only the people kept God's word to an extreme, an extreme way, so extreme that they even added additional rules, humans like to do that. Those of us who like to be rule keepers, you know, we've got the rule breakers and the rule keepers. And those of us who are the rule keepers, the rules often aren't good enough. We need to add extra ones to make sure we don't break the, the main ones. Uh, this was actually called a fence around the law that the Pharisees had created. And in their zeal, a zeal for God, Paul refers to this, a zeal for God, um, they actually further oppressed the people by making following God even more difficult than God himself intended it to be. These are all, th whether it's, it's cutting deals with government in order to survive or making our religion more difficult because of some noble goal, these are things that human beings have been doing for centuries and centuries. But it was coming to a head in the time of Jesus. It's only more recently that I understood a little better why Jesus tried as best he could to keep his, what he was doing as secret as possible. You know, when we read this, the stories of the Gospels, it doesn't seem very secret as throngs would gather around him and um, he would speak to perhaps thousands of people. But yet at the same time, a lot of his ministry was in the north, in, in Galilee, um, away from much of the religious, well, away from the religious leadership uh, the power brokers in Jerusalem tried very, he tried to keep his messianic calling under wraps 
because if that got out too strongly, the Romans would certainly shut it down, which is exactly what happened about three years into, uh, into his ministry, which again brings us to the events that we're talking about this week. And so the time had come to make his mission clear. Again, to us it seemed it was always clear. But if you read carefully, it wasn't always clear. People were very divided over who he was, and they, they were concerned. And, and it, it, remember, it wasn't a day of social media, though I guess social media has confused things more than clarified them, right? Uh, we're probably more confused than we ever were. Human beings have always had a hard time getting the truth correct. Um, and we know that in our own little tiny family circles, how statements are made and then they get all confused and... And somehow we think that our, our news agencies can get it right. <laughs> That's a funny one. Um, because human beings really have a hard time with uh, communicating well, and especially communicating truth well. So there was a lot of division over who he was. He tried to make his mission clear to his inner circle, and even they had trouble fully understanding it. And then this happens. He sends his disciples to, hopefully it was very well, described with the scripture reading and then the, the dramatization that I provided, uh, by getting on that, on that donkey and riding into Jerusalem, now he's going public. This, this is his first public showing of himself. And what he was doing was very, very clear. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem as the promised king. And the crowds, the crowds that were favorable towards him, of course, those who were favorable towards him, knew exactly what he was doing and celebrated accordingly and appropriately. I've noticed through the years as this event is taught to God's people, very often it's said that the crowds got it wrong. They thought they were welcoming the victorious Messiah not knowing that he was going to be crucified and had to die for our sins. Well, it's true that they didn't understand yet that he had to die for our sins before he would accomplish his great victories later on. They were correct to welcome him as the great messianic king. They were right to celebrate. They, where they went wrong is in their great expectations, the great expectations that were correct. God had promised Messiah would come and he would deliver us from oppression. He, he, he declared the Messiah would come and deliver us from our spiritual oppression. That he was going to come and he was going to bring about the restoration of all things. That is all true. What they didn't understand is that he was beginning a process. He was inaugurating his messianic reign, but there was going to be a process over we still don't know how long until he returns to fully accomplish everything that was expected. We also, or they didn't realize, that while they were expecting that he was going to beat up the bad Romans and kick them out of the land of Israel and reestablish the kingdom of Israel and establish God's kingdom on earth. That's what they, uh, they thought that he was going to do. And while he didn't do that, his accomplishment, the victory that he won, 
was not less than, but greater than. They expected that he was going to break Caesar's sword and release the people from Roman oppression. Jesus did better than that because by his death and his resurrection, he broke Satan's oppression and he broke Satan's sword, which was death itself. And again, we're going to look at that more next week as we see what his death and his resurrection accomplishes in the world and for our lives. What we're looking at this morning is the struggle that his followers had in fully understanding what it was that he was doing. So their inability to understand what Jesus was really all about captures normal human expectation. They didn't understand that now that it was time for Jesus to confront the powers of evil and of darkness, be it political, be it spiritual, be it social, and so on, they didn't understand that there was a a, a road of suffering that needed to be walked in order to fully accomplish the victory that Messiah had come to do. They simply thought that this was, maybe they possibly thought there was going to be a war, but if they suffered casualties, they'd be minor, and of course the resurrection was coming anyway. They thought it was around the corner if Jesus was really the Messiah. They didn't know that there would be a difficult road ahead. And we see this Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, in this interaction that Peter had with Jesus, we read, um, it's in Matthew 16, starting verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter had just confessed among uh, the close circle of his disciples that Jesus was really the Messiah this was affirmed by Jesus, and now he's teaching that he's going to have to be, uh, that he would suffer many things under the hands of the, the Jewish religious leadership, and he'd be killed, and then on the third day be raised. So Peter takes him aside, verse 22, and begins to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The human interpretation of the promise of the coming of the Messiah necessarily meant that he was just going to come and beat up the bad guys, end of story. Our human natures don't allow us to accept that when the good comes, it's going to come with horrific pushback as a road to this eventual victory. Now, we, now we're now we after the fact. We're after his death and resurrection. We get it. Some of us might wonder why Peter was like this and why the Lord was so harsh with him because we know the story now. It's, you know, 2020 hindsight. That's pretty easy when you have that. And yet, have we learned the lesson? Because it seems to me that a lot, a lot of us still believe that now that Jesus died and rose from the dead, we're good. 
Many of you know my story. I knew nothing about the gospel at all until I was almost 19. And when this young man shared the gospel with me on a day that totally revolutionized my life for good, um, there's one thing that he said that was off. He said so many helpful, insightful things. But he told me that if I said this prayer asking uh, God to forgive me my sins and believing that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, that I'd be happy for the rest of my life. Now, there is truth in that because there is a type of happiness that I have had despite all the challenges that I have faced. But many of the challenges that I have faced, and some of them have to do with my own need to grow as a human being and a child of God, and I haven't uh, cooperated with God in the ways that I always should. Somehow I've justified my sin in different ways along the way, but praise God, he's, he hasn't given up on me. But also, he's called me in, we talked about this some weeks ago, as, as, as when I said yes to Jesus, it automatically put me in, in conflict with my Jewish family, relatives, and friends. I didn't really get, so that, that happened right away, um, and I deemed very quickly that if this good news about Jesus being the Jewish Messiah was true, it was all worth it. I didn't fully understand how it would put me in conflict with society in general. And there's a tendency that we think that somehow when we know God, it's supposed to be smooth sailing. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Jesus continues in Matthew 16, verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This is the believer, this is to the, at least the potential believer he's talking to. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. There's all sorts of teaching in the church that says this isn't true. There's all sorts of teaching in the church uh, worldwide that contradicts what Jesus says, that contradicts what the Bible says. How we live matters. We could, we could think we're holding a, a ticket to heaven, so to speak, and we hide that in our pocket and then live any way we want. Well, we're going to be called to account. Now, Jesus is our example of this. And you know, something I kept saying over and over again as we looked at his temptations, he didn't, he didn't resist the devil's temptations just so that we could applaud him. Way to go, Jesus, now we're all good. He did that as an example to us. Yes, he cleared the way for us, and, and, and even more so through his death and resurrection, but he did that to equip us so that we could withstand the assaults of the evil one. I'm personally reading the book of Ephesians, and I'm right now in the armor of God, where we're called to be strong in the strength of the Lord and put on the armor of God because we're in a battle. And if we don't wear the armor, we're sitting ducks. And yet we somehow think that our faith, the church we go to, maybe we read the Bible, maybe we don't, maybe we pray every day, maybe we don't, and somehow this is our force field that's going to prevent us and somehow get us through, and then we wonder why our lives are not like what they should be. 
as we're being wounded and wounded and wounded because we're not walking in the strength of the Lord's might, nor are we wearing the armor of God, an armor that's necessary because we're in a battle. The coming of Jesus and his conquering death and and the breaking of Satan's power was not to put us on easy street, but it was so we could be invited in to join him in this battle and so that at the end of all things and the beginning of the new things, we would be prepared for all of that. You know, we we tend to think of, of Jesus' suffering as simply, well, he's the son of God, and the devil doesn't like him, and the devil was going to be after him because he's the son of God. And sort of like, uh, oh, there's Jesus, he thinks that he's the son of God, let's torture and kill him. Doing that through the religious leaders and the, and the Romans. But that's not his story. Jesus didn't come to earth, and like we see in all the pictures, glowed as he walked around in these flowing robes. And then the devil just kept sending darts in his direction because it's so obvious, here comes the Holy One. That's not the story at all. Jesus was hated, it certainly was hated for who he was, but he was hated for what he did. He was hated for what he said. He spoke God's word, he did God's will, and evil hates that. Evil cannot tolerate God's good. And everywhere God's good is, evil goes after it with a vengeance. And that's what happened to Jesus. He purposely confronted. He he wasn't just like a nice guy that happened to get picked on by the bullies in the schoolyard. That's not his story. He knew what he was saying. He knew it was going to rattle the self-righteous folks. He knew it was going to rattle the Romans, as much as they would hear about it. He knew it was going to rattle evil in every way. His right, but his righteous life didn't let evil have the last word, but it would get a lot worse before it would get better. Again, we'll be talking about that next time. How many commercials can I give you for next weekend? This way of life is common in Scripture. We live in a world that challenges the will of God. We live in a world that challenges God's people. Interesting, in a sense, it starts with Adam and Eve before they ever sinned. We have this, this, some misnomers about them. Um, now, they're a bad example because they failed. But notice, they started their lives by facing a serious challenge. They were in, people like to call it paradise. I don't know if that's the best term for it. They were in this wonderful environment. They had all their needs met. They had all this wonderful future looking ahead of them. And their challenge in that place that we think of as perfection. If they would face the devil's challenge in their state, how much more when when we're in this cosmic battle against the forces of darkness now? Noah was the only righteous man of his day. And he and his family were saved along with the animals in the ark. But do we stop to think how much hardship he had to face in order to fulfill God's will? There's, of course, the building of this monstrous boat-like thing. And we don't, people talk about the ridicule that he endured. We don't know if that's true, but it's likely. He certainly was, was doing this heavy-duty project with only his family involved. 
And then there's however they administered getting the animals on board, but my quote-unquote favorite part is the year that they spent cooped up with all those animals on the sea. All aboard? Who wants to do that? Well, yeah, if it's going to mean that or drowning, sure. But it's not easy. Happy for the rest of his life. Like, really now? A year? The smell alone? Following God leads us to what is good, leads us to what is true, leads us to the great eternity with him. But the road is not an easy one. Look at Joseph. Joseph, honored by his father, honored by God by giving him these dreams, destined to rule over his family and to save the, the known world of his time. And yet the road to the palace was the dungeon. A horrible, awful place. David. David, who is taken from being a shepherd in the field, more or less neglected by his own family, called to be the king, and all these wonderful things start to happen. He becomes the king's musician. He conquers Goliath. They're singing songs in his honor. And then the king, the current king, hates him with a vengeance and is out to kill him and takes all of his military resources to hunt David down as David is, is hiding in caves. Would he have been better off just living the simple life of a shepherd? If you knew what, it, what you might have to do on the way to the victory that God wants to lead you to, would you rather stay in your shepherd-like existence? I wonder how many people have returned to being a shepherd, metaphorically so, because the road to reigning with God is just too difficult. There's a verse I've been quoting wrong the past few weeks, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I took the he cannot be my disciple and I put it to, if you don't pick up my cross and follow me, you, you cannot be my disciple. But it, it, it all fits. It's all the same message. There's a huge social challenge. Be as part of the call to follow the Lord. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, in Mark 10, 29, 30, uh, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying here in the Gospel of Mark, that you come on the Jesus mission, you're going to be taken care of. There's nothing that you give up that God's not going to provide you more of. He's going to take care of you. We know this from Matthew chapter 6, that be anxious for nothing because you, you follow God's rule. You follow his righteousness. He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide all your needs. But it's going to be with persecutions. I wasn't told that the day I came to know the Lord. So... So, nobody's perfect. God knew what he was doing. He, he taught me this eventually. I'm still struggling with it. Because I don't like persecution. I don't like suffering. I don't like... I struggle with my sleep. I wake, you know, an hour, wake up, two hours, wake up. That's not fun. I don't like it. That's not because I'm a believer, I don't think. But the other things in life. Living isn't easy. 
For some reason, I wasn't taught that life was difficult. I wasn't taught that life was supposed to be hard. I thought life was about watching TV and reading comic books and playing games, having fun. That's what people are told. Do what you want. Do how you feel. Feed your desires, right? Life's about you. Get married for you. And when when it's not suiting you anymore, go find somebody else. That's what people are told. It's all about you. That's how I was, I was raised. What a selfish kid I was. And I've had to struggle with that ever since. I found out there's a few more selfish people just like me out there. Are we going to let ourselves be confronted by God's word and see life as it's supposed to be and then live the life that he's calling us to? He says, John 16, I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you may have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. It's very hard to conceive of how we can have peace in the midst of tribulation. I guess it takes a miracle. Well, God wants to give us that miracle. But we're not going to have the miracle of peace in the midst of trouble if we're not really walking with him. Paul, in his words to the uh, leaders in Ephesus in Acts 14, That may not be, sorry, that may not be where he is, but the point is still the same. Acts 14, 21 and 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium, that's where they were, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We are called to walk Jesus' road. And yet Paul, who is such an example of this, He writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That if we could capture the benefit, there's talk in these days, in these COVID days, of risk-benefit. Risk-benefit. When you're dealing with medical treatments, you need to look at risk-benefit. Well, how about living and living with Jesus? What's the risk-benefit? The benefit is you get everything. Eternal life. God with you now. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Being used by God to make a difference in people's lives. And let, we, let you know, add to the list of the benefits. What's the risk? You might get killed. You weigh it out. Because if you, if you, if you, don't, if you don't embrace this risk-benefit, there's a greater risk greater risk of eternal separation from God. But even in this life, do you really want to do it without him? Do you really want to find out that you've been claiming his name and been living as a hypocrite your whole life? I ask myself that question. Am I really following the Lord? Am I really doing his will? Can I claim his his peace and his presence given Some of the things in my heart, some of the things that I've done, God help me. Forgive me my sins again, O Lord, and help me to walk with you. Romans 8, verses 18, 25 say, read, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. 
For who hopes for what he, what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it patiently, with patience. We're called to wait. Wait for God to fully come through. But waiting in Scripture, as I've taught from this place before, is not passive. Waiting in Scripture is hope. Hope is looking forward with eager expectation, with a great expectation of all that God has for us, all that he has for us in the future, and all that he has for us today. We can't afford to misunderstand what the Lord is calling us unto, like the disciples did. We have to stop avoiding God's call on our, upon our lives in all that he's calling us to do, whatever it costs. And I've been praying about this for myself more than ever. God, deal with my fear. Help me to be willing to do whatever you're calling me to do, whatever the cost. And I invite you to pray that prayer along with me. Our Father, we thank you that Messiah has come. The Savior of the world has come. Thank you that because of that, we have so much to celebrate. Thank you that he has come to die for our sins and by rising from the dead, he's given us new life and has now invited us to follow him in this great mission. Show us, Lord, Show us where we have turned to our own ways, where we have shrunk back from facing the challenges that you're calling us into. And as you call us or recall us into those challenges, give us the strength to keep going forward. Give us the faith to trust you and help us to be everything that you want us to be in this day that your people would be the shining lights that you've called us to be in a very dark and confused world. Father, we look forward to the day when your son returns. Until then, may we be found worthy of being your people, that we would reflect everything that he is. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca.